invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians this morning. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading at verse 26 and read down through chapter 6, verse 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Well, this morning, the title of the message and the theme of this section is Restoration, Motivations for Restoration. The Christian life should be filled with demonstrations of restoration. Your own salvation is a restoration of sorts. You were separated from God because of your sin that you were born with, born into, and then through the cross of Christ, there is a restoration where you were brought from death under Adam to life in Christ. But sin has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with at your salvation, and it has to be dealt with throughout your whole Christian growth experience called sanctification. And the Bible talks about dealing with sin because it's very, very serious. 1 John 1.8 says that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. The Word of God says that we lie to ourselves and we say the truth's not in us, but that's deception. If sin were not a reality, there'd be no hardship in our world. There'd be no threat to our life. There'd be no threat to our health. Sin is the cause of all of those ills that we live with. No sin would mean that there's no death, that there's no devil, and there's no hell. There's no eternal consequence after you die. The book of James cuts it very, very straight and is very straightforward regarding sin and its temptations. They're born from within us. We can't blame God only Ourselves are to blame for our sins that lead us ultimately, if not dealt with in Christ, to death. Physical death, but worse, spiritual death. James 2 talks about the sin of partiality, playing favorites within church. James 1.21 says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. James 3 speaks of the tongue being this mighty tool for sin. We stumble in many ways, verse 2, and the tongue is set on fire as if set on the fire by the fires of hell. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, verse 10 of chapter 3 of James. James 4, where do quarrels and fights originate? Well, they originate from within, from people who are coveting for things that they don't have. James calls people within the church an adulterous people. Who are friends with the world. James 4 7 says, resist the devil. Verse 8 says, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. 
Sin is a theme everywhere. Romans 3 is full of a description of the sinfulness of sin that's from within. Romans 7, Paul's testimony trying to deal with the sin that was still in his own heart, even as a believer. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Genesis 6, 5, speaking of the pre-flood state of man that was in massive digression, generation after generation of digression and sins upon sins, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is sin. And how do we deal with sin in our own lives personally and within the body life corporately. That's what Paul is dealing with back in Galatians chapter 5. Recently, we went through a couple lists. A couple weeks ago, we went through the list that marked the deeds of the flesh. These are the sins and the categories of sins and sinning that happen pre-Christ and then that crop up from time to time as we battle against our own Flesh, that list is pervasive and personal and it speaks of being self-absorbed and being self-religious and being dissension, uh, causing dissensions and being divisive and being a drunkard. These are sins and patterns of sins that are commonplace in unbelievers' lives but also in believers' lives. By contrast, there is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which again highlights how sinful we are when we do not obey the Spirit of God. Sin left to itself, it weakens the community of faith. You know this. One sin in the body affects the whole body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When people are suffering because of their sin, even if they're Sins are not directly affecting us. We feel the consequences of people who are falling down and failing, do we not? We grieve for people as the Holy Spirit grieves over our sins. But this shouldn't surprise us. People are brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51, 5. In sin did my mother conceive me. This is the epidemic and the problem of our world, but it's a problem that even remains within the church when sin is left undealt with. When sin is left undealt with, 1 John 2, 28 says that people shrink back in fear of Christ's return. 1 John 2, 28, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back at his coming. Sin makes you an unconfident Christian. Think about that. Your confidence is in Christ, but sin weakens that confidence as we try to grow in grace, as we try to help people. Sin weakens the ministry. It weakens your usefulness as a spiritually gifted man or woman or boy and girl in the body of Christ. You want a clear conscience to minister freely within the body. Sin hampers joy. It hampers fellowship. Sin brings shame. It brings guilt. And it brings the Lord's chastisement. Sin is grievous and it's horrible. When people sin by joining themselves to the world, it's like joining themselves to a prostitute. And as Christians, it's like joining Christ to the world in that horrible way. 1 Corinthians six fifteen and 16. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. 30, it says, Why are many of you weak and ill and some have died? Well, it's because of sin and blasphemy that was going on at that time. Sin has consequences. It 
should be our number one aim to combat our sin, to be holy personally and as a church. When the church is holy, the church is blessed. The Holy Spirit moves freely through a holy church. First Peter says judgment begins with the household of God. Revelation has a clear picture of how Christ is looking upon his lampstands, his churches, whom he loves. And he wants us as a church to be his bride that is washed with the word of God. From holiness flows real sanctification, true worship, true fellowship. And you want to be effective as a witness for the world, be a holy community. Not legalistically holy. We've been covering that in, Revela- in, in Galatians, our text. And our, our book of the Bible is all about not doing this through externals, through performance, but through a genuine holiness that's found through life in the Holy Spirit by abiding in Christ, by yielding ourselves to his word as the Lord speaks to us. In this study of Galatians, there was revealed legalism and legalists who were combating true holiness and real sanctification. They were propping up the law to say, if you really want, especially as a Gentile Christian, to be sealed up and affirmed as part of the body of Christ, then you need to keep certain ceremonial laws still. You need to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And that was false teaching, and it was within this church. It's what Paul has dismantled through teaching the gospel But these legalists were promoting a counterfeit holiness. And this counterfeit holiness affects the body of Christ. People will prop themselves up and prop their works up and and try to take over holiness externally to their own detriment and to the detriment of others. Legalists, instead of relieving people of their sin burdens, add burdens. They add burdens. They are the Pharisees who tie up heavy burdens when the gospel load is easy and light because it is lived by faith. It's not by works. Walking by the Spirit is a ministry that we have individually and corporately as we call each other to Christ to live by the Spirit. Listen, one person put it this way. As Christians, we're often motivated to win the loss to Christ. But I would say, along with this quote, we need to also, as Christians, win each other to holiness. So we want to win people to Christ, but we need to win people to holiness. We need to win people to walk by the Holy Spirit. We need to win people to that because people are ensnared with the plague of sin like we all are. And we all need each other corporately to win the saved, not just win the lost. It's spiritual soul winning that the legalist has no time for. So again, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to keep in step or march in line? By the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? These are phrases that are tucked away at the end of chapter 5. Just laid out for us. The spiritual walk. What does it mean to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit? All of these beautiful attributes of love and joy and peace and patience. The kindness and gentleness and meekness and self-control of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it's for sure not a mystical experience. There's nothing here saying that you have to go into some sort of strange 
entranced state to connect with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is not yours to yield to by autopilot, just, just by saying, okay, I'm going to push a button and not worry about following the Holy Spirit. I'll leave that to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a real living person that leads your life and leads your life by his providence circumstantially into opportunities to demonstrate love. All through chapter 5 and then leading into chapter 6, there are themes of love and fulfilling the law of Christ, the law of love. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 13, that phrase at the end, but through love serve one another. That is the word doulos for slave. We are slaves of one another. You want to walk by the Holy Spirit. You want to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. You want to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Be a slave to someone in church. Love them. Be others-centered and serve them. That is a manifestation or a demonstration of walking by the Holy Spirit of God. That's when the Holy Spirit is vitally working in our lives. When we are on a mission to restore people who have been ensnared in their own sins. You say, well, I'm checking out on that because uh, that's really hard to do. Last time I talked to somebody about their sin, it did not go very well. Right? Upload scenario 18 and I'm not doing 19, right? I've had that conversation, been there, done that. It hurts. Sheep bite hard. And it is. It is difficult to talk to people about their sins. We're all sinners. So it's very difficult to take our eyes off of ourselves. I mean, we're fighting our own flesh anyway. So that's a spiritual decision to be other centered let alone the guilt of our sins, but then to become others-focused and to go there with people is very difficult. We need motivation to go there with people. And what I found within the text of Galatians 5 going into Galatians 6 are a series of motivations to restore people who are ensnared or entrapped or cycling down in a sin or sin pattern. There are six motivations when restoring someone ensnared to sin. And I studied this week, I studied out material for all six, but I can only give you two this morning. Sorry. And we're going to start with the first one. And I made these motivations into outline points to connect with the context and the idea of what the text says. First of all, we need to, first of all, repent of personal sin. Our motivation to reach out to others begins with our own personal repentance with our own sin. You're not going to be any good to anybody else if you're messed up in your own heart first. You've got to deal with that first before you can reach out to others. Let someone else lift you to higher ground so you can reach down and lift that person that's beneath you that needs to be lifted up. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That verse is right after verse 25. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And by contrast to being in step with the Spirit, for sure, do not be conceited. Don't be one provoking or envying one another. The main idea is that believers are not meant to be competitive in the body of Christ. 
Contrawise to that, you are called to support each other in the body of Christ. It is a support one another ministry where you are bearing one another's burdens. You're coming underneath people's burdens. Particular section of Galatians where Paul is moving from individual responsibility to a community accountability. And this is brass tacks Christian spirituality, Christianity 101. This is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit is real and it is explained in concrete. We forsake self-absorption. We forsake glory hunger. You say, I don't have that. Because you said that, you have it. No, anyway, right? I mean, we all want glory and we have to cast that off. These are the social sins within the church. Keeping in step with the Spirit means that we forsake being conceited. Being yielded to the Holy Spirit means we put off and put away from us our arrogance and our pride. Conceited is kenduxoi here in the New Testament. It relates to Paul's. Paul's word in Philippians 2, 3, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit. Philippians 2, with the example of Christ's humility, we humble ourselves, esteeming others higher than ourselves. Being conceited is having vain glory. It's a hollow opinion of yourself that's empty and false. It's the epitome of being insecure. And when you cherish this kind of illusion about yourself... When you have this kind of false idea about yourself that you're something when you're really nothing, it poisons the relationships that you really want to have within the body of Christ. You say, what's going wrong? Why aren't I happy with happy people in Christ? We'll begin here with this sin of conceit or vain glory. According to Paul, being conceited leads to being a provoking and envying person. You become provocative. You become someone who is giving, given to provocation and jealousy. They're the fruit of being conceited. And one person said, it's amazing how your conduct toward others is determined by your own opinion of yourself. How you think about yourself dictates the way that you relate to other people. It really is true. If you have an inferiority complex or a superiority complex about yourself, that will impact the way that you relate to other people. It will either push you into being a provoker or being someone who is envious. Feeling superior, it tempts a person to challenge or provoke while feeling inferior tempts someone to be jealous. Paul is talking in two different ways, and John Stott helped clarify this for me this week. He said the provoking stance is someone who is sure he is superior looking down on someone else. Doesn't that make sense? If you're conceited in a superior way, you're looking down on somebody and you'll provoke them. You'll get their goat. You'll get their ire up, right? You'll put them on the defensive because you want them to feel their weakness in your presence. You want to compete with them. You want to feel better than them. And then the envying stance is someone who is feeling they are inferior, looking up, feeling as feeling he is above him or her. It's where you're wishing you had what they have. Envy can be so embittered that someone's success or happiness is 
something you're rivaling or you're against. You're glad when someone falls into misfortune, if you are envious of that person. It's a fantasy opinion of yourself where you can't bear rivals. Well, these temptations, they fly in the face of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God's work in your life, right? The Holy Spirit does not want you to be conceited, self-filled, glory-hungry. He wants you to be yielded. He wants you to manifest an other-centeredness like no other. Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul here is in the name of Christ forbidding, irritating, and inflaming others. The pride that provokes and causes quarrels and fights, that's to, there's to be none of that in the body of Christ. Though it's there, it has to be dealt with. It's forbidden. Provoking, it's used of, of language in classical Greek for starting a fight or, or challenging someone in a contest. That's not Christianity. Competing with believers is not walking by the Spirit. Esteeming others is. A legalist, they want you to live by competition. They want you to be in the flesh. This is the scene where, uh, you know, it's Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and the evil emperor that's challenging Luke, you know, grab the lightsaber, go for it, you know, get angry, compete, take it on. Sorry, if you guys uh, don't know where I'm going with that. But it is, it is true, and it, you know, it's sort of the uh, Greek mythology of our day. It, it is true that the temptations are satanic in our hearts when we're conflicted. How do I approach that person that I'm struggling with? I feel superior or inferior, and I'm in this flesh category mode, and we have to humble ourselves before the Holy Spirit to reach that person in humility and grace. And that, my friend, takes the hard work of yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. And that's the beautiful work of community building in the body of Christ. One person put it this way. It's attempting to make yourself look good by making other people look bad. Paul admonishes believers to look at their own lives to stop boasting and provoking. Sinful attitudes are the marks of immature, sinful Christians who place their own interest above others. There's no greater pride than... A self-righteous pride. What a sin. Self-righteousness. That's Satan's original sin, right? Shouldn't be named among us. I like what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. All of this is necessary groundwork for Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 is one of the most practical verses in the scripture in terms of what we are to do as a Christian, what it looks like to walk by the Spirit as a Christian, what it looks like to be holy as a Christian, what it looks like to help somebody out who's in sin, who is a Christian. That is what Galatians 6.1 is to us. It is a beautiful text, but its power lies in the idea of how sinful Sin really is how destructive sin really is to an individual, to the body of Christ. That's a motivating force for moving towards someone and going there. But again, step one, you have to deal with yourself first. 
You have to deal with your own conceit, your own vainglory, your own glory hunger. You've got to kill that in your life, humble yourself, and then you're ready to approach and help somebody out to rescue, point two, an ensnared brother. This is another motivation, a motivation of repentance and now a motivation of rescue. These are the heart attitudes that you want to have as you move towards people. Verse 1, Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He begins with brothers, Adolfoy, which is a very endearing, warm um, approach to this context. A lot of times people are, you know, heresy hunters. They're sin sharks. They're looking for something to take on. You know, I've got 18 Bible verses ready and loaded. I've got my speech ready. I'm ready to dive in and thrust myself into the conflict or the confrontation. And Paul is trying to warm the atmosphere and say, listen, let me just give you a hypothetical case, brothers, something that we could all fall into if we're not careful. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, anyone. So who is susceptible to being caught in a transgression? Anyone, everyone, all of us. Right? Pride comes before the fall. We, we need to realize that we are susceptible to falling. We should not think ourselves as impervious to any sin. These are the sin here, by the way, it's transgression. It, it's speaking of being overtaken by a transgression. The sense here is the idea that someone was going along the road and suddenly they tripped up on the road by something that, they, that took them by surprise, that they weren't anticipating. I don't know that the text is that specific to say that this isn't talking about premeditated sin. But sin so often takes us by surprise where we are deluded in our own minds. We think we're fine. We think we're moving along and we've got it nailed. We wish that we were more holy in categories X, Y, and Z. But, you know, they're in suspension right now. So that's not going to get me. And I've dealt with this one and that one. And I'm not as bad as that person or this person, right? The Pharisee looking down on the tax gatherer. I've paid my tithes. I've prayed my prayers. I've shown up. I've... I've given, I've lived the life, you know, my parents were Christians, so I'm covered, right? Wrong, wrong. This is talking about anyone who's going down the road, just like David on the roof, and he stumbles in sin. The King James Version probably gets the translation best. The word caught here, caught in a tra- any transgression, is a man who is overtaken, it's the idea that you're going along and you're not going fast enough and the sin overtook you. Maybe took you by surprise. It, it's a picture of a sin attacking a person. It's the predatory nature of sin. It's being on the internet with a bombardment of predatory pictures or links or ideas or things to read or things to do. It's predatory sin that catches people unawares. It's an unwilling victim of sorts, though that victim is fully responsible for what he or she morally chooses to do. It's doing something against your better judgment. It may imply that a fellow Christian actually sees a person 
being caught in a sin. I know of a fellow Christian brother who early in his seminary career was just wandering along, had nothing better to do, was tired and fatigued and went right into a certain movie theater, went right into a certain R-rated movie and sat down and he was a married man and this buddy of his, his best friend at seminary, saw him go into that movie. Now, as the story goes, the person didn't go in and grab his brother in Christ and pull him out of the movie because it was clearly not a good movie to go into. But later, he did talk to him about it. And this fellow Christian told me that, that, that he fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit as the, you know, as the movie began and he got up and left. So he didn't stay there anyway. But sometimes that happens. Sometimes we catch each other in sins. We find each other sinning and, and we're responsible to them in that way. That could be part of the sense of this, someone being caught in the act. The main idea has to do with stumbling or falling, a person who's let their guard down. They're flirting with temptation. They think they can withstand sin. I like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says Regarding this, he says, when Christians fall into a fault, it is account of their traveling slowly on the road to heaven. Hence the expression, if he be overtaken with a fault. He would not have been overtaken if he had been traveling faster. If his heart had been quick in the ways of the Lord, he would have outstripped the temptation. Please understand We can't outrun our sin in a physical sense. It's just keeping our hearts in warm, guarded spiritual exercise with the community of faith and humble transparency in safe relationships in Christ. That's how you begin to have momentum spiritually and some protection against sin. But whatever the case, when this sin hypothetically caught this brother or sister in Christ, this sin affected another brother or sister in Christ who then has a choice to make whether or not he or she will obey this text and pursue that person with a plan of restoration. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to rationalize when we see our brother or sister who's ensnared in sin, perhaps a sin pattern that we have discovered and we see the effects in that person's life? Are we supposed to say, well, love covers a multitude of sins, so God, we just cover this. Or I'm going to overlook this transgression and pray for that person. Actually, I'm going to go to someone else and I'm going to pray more intelligently with this other person by informing this person about that person's sin as we pray for that person. But I'm just going to leave that person to live it out and leave that person with the Lord. That's called gossip. That's another sin that somebody else needs to help somebody else out with, right? It's easy to be passive and it's easy to be too... Aggressive. It's easy to blind ourselves to the facts and reality that are before us, and it's easy to charge in, in the flesh, trying to rescue somebody in the wrong way. You can be tempted to charge in aggressively and expose a person's sin and try to gain a reputation of superior holiness. You can present a scenario as a legalist where you say, look, if you do one, two, or three, you're off the hook. That's wrong. Legalists, they treat people caught in sins differently than those who are led by the Holy Spirit. We don't want to go in legalistically. We don't want to be passive. We don't want to be aggressive. We want to be trusting God. One pastor said this about sin. 
said, I have often thought that if I ever fall into a trespass, I will pray that I don't fall into the hands of those censorious, critical judges in the church. Let me fall into the hands of the barkeepers, streetwalkers, and dope peddlers because such church people would tear me apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues, cutting me to shreds. We can't relate to that. All right, so John 8, 1 is a pericope or paragraph in Scripture that is the scenario of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. You might turn there. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came up to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman, and look at this wording here, who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law... Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Trying to trap Jesus. This was to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, I don't know what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. Perhaps it was a sin list of the sins of the crowd, of the Pharisees, of the scribes. It says that from oldest to youngest, they began to depart. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. So maybe the sin list was longer for them. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You notice in verse 10, Jesus never had in his heart to condemn this woman. He wanted to restore a woman. When people are caught in sins, whether it's by, you know, through the process of Matthew 18, step one, and then bringing witnesses or telling the whole church, or even coming to the place, step four, where you disfellowship someone and say, I'm now going to treat that person as an unbeliever. Do you realize that those steps are loving steps? That all of those steps, the most private one, to one where you're bringing in spirit-filled witnesses who are prepared to confront, and then time passes and there's step three, and you you are beginning to open up to the body of Christ that we we are fearing for this person's soul, that this is an act of love, that we are actually going to suspend the benefits of Christian fellowship to that person because they're, they're in such a hard-hearted pattern of disobedience that they look and act like an unbeliever, and we're just not sure anymore where they are spiritually, that this is all the ministry of restoration. This is an outreach ministry. This is where people in the body of Christ are willing to selflessly put themselves out there in harm's way and say, I've got to say the hard thing to you privately. And then if there's resistance, maybe in more public arenas, but it's in a heart of restoration and love that this needs to be done. People become aggressive. The Jewish mob that went against Paul in Acts 21, 27, believing he had defiled the temple because he brought Gentiles in there, they went after him. Legalists, they don't need facts or proof. They only operate on suspicions and rumors. Righteous imaginations do the rest. But Paul is contrasting the way of legalists And saying that we approach a person in sin with the spirit to restore, not exploit. 
So what's the proper course of action? Let me just give you three steps and we'll be done. Um, Who should do it? What should be done? And how should it be done? This This is very practical. I remember being taught this about 20 years ago or longer, maybe 25 years ago, and it always stuck with me, these practical steps of what to do. We have to be humble yet bold. We, we're neither quick to criticize, but we can't be afraid. So who should do it? First of all, a person who is spiritual does it. It's from the word pneumatikos, you who are spiritual. And we've talked about being yielded to the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. It is prerequisite, if you are a Christian, that the Spirit of God enlivened you at your conversion and resides with you as you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God convicts you, draws you along, teaches you the Word of God. The Spirit of God is alive in your life. So in that sense, every believer is spiritual. We have the Holy Spirit. We're not naturally minded, but we are spiritually minded. We understand issues. We understand the word of God, and we're able to apply spiritual words to a spiritual situation to help. But I believe that because the context here talks about walking by the Spirit and how there's a war inside of us, chapter 5, verse 17, uh, where the flesh is against the Spirit, that it's those who have taken spiritual preparation to humble themselves underneath the Holy Spirit, to ready themselves to go in gentleness, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the attributes of the fruit of the Holy Spirit as you reach people in love and joy and peace, where you are ready to do that. Those are the people who come to the rescue of people who have fallen down. So how does this apply? Any Christian at any point in his Christian life is accountable to do this work. So you're a day in the Lord, you're a week in the Lord. This applies. I'm not saying that there isn't grace in terms of people being at different stages in their Christian sanctification at different points of their lives and they grow over the years, but No one is exempt at any stage from pursuing another person who needs to be pursued. I mean, the good news is is that Christian sanctification is cumulative. It's, uh, It's an effect over time. And God will not bring you into situations and put more on you than he puts in you to bear up in that situation. He'll be there with you. He'll give you the word of God. There are other Christian brothers and sisters who are more mature than you, right, and me, that we can rely on as we move towards people to rescue them. But I do remember personally coming to Christ at 17 under the ministry of a lay Sunday school teacher. He was a divorced man, and he was an ex-convict and ex-drug dealer and was a very charismatic, interesting guy who got our attention as we were the rowdy boys from the youth group that they all shoved into the corner Sunday school class. And he decided to set his eyes of affection and love upon us. He was about five foot nothing and would actually step onto the Sunday school table and march back and forth and preach the gospel to us. And when we would cut up in class, he would say, listen, if you, son, want to meet me out back in the parking lot afterwards, we can do that. But right now, be quiet. One time I went out to, like, give the offering or some sort of Sunday school role to the superintendent. And it was so exercised in the room when I left the room My heart rate was going like this, and I'm a 17-year-old thinking, what is going on? But what he was doing is he was winning us all to Christ. 
We were in an Arminian setting, in a Baptist setting, so he didn't know that his gospel preaching wasn't just confirming our salvation. We were all unregenerate, but many of us came to Christ, and several of us went into full-time Christian ministry together. And so this guy, who was kind of a wild card, after about a year or two, I went to Christian college, and I would come back and forth on Christmas break and things. He was beginning to slip. And probably a year or two in, I remember having to have a conversation with him because he was, he was flirting with a, a woman inappropriately, and then he was going to go camping with someone that was a female. And I just, you know, even as an 18-year-old, I, I knew that was wrong. And I talked to him about it in a gentle way, you know, by God's grace. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be open to confronting each other in love. Because if we don't do that for each other, then who is, right? Number two, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to restore him. You're supposed to restore the brother caught in sin. Ezra 4, 12, and 13, in the Hebrew sense of that word, it's the idea of building a wall. You're trying to build somebody up, or in the New Testament sense, Matthew 4, 21, where Jesus saw... James and John mending their nets. The same word for restore is katartizo. It's the idea of mending something together. It's building up and mending, setting something right. It's like setting a dislocated bone back in place. It's a, it's a medical metaphor. It's a medical procedure. And I've never had the privilege of having a bone broken or dislocated. My brother, uh, Johnny, he's made the sermon a couple times recently, um, in two-hand touch football, got clobbered by a guy. And, uh, and his, bone, his bones were separated from each other, though in the skin. That must have hurt really badly. But I've never been through that. So um, anyway, but he, he has. When, when somebody is dislocated within the body of Christ, the point is there's pain, and it will take pain to restore the situation. And any good doctor is willing to say, I've got to cause this patient pain. I care for this patient enough, and I'm going to do it gently in love, but I've got to put this dislocated bone back in place so that things can be properly aligned within the natural design that it was intended to be. It's putting a bone back. It's healing pain. It's inevitable pain. It's, uh, it's confronting that's aimed at prompting change for health, and healing. It's returning someone to his or her former condition. It's a broken bone or a dislocated joint. It's difficult to do it. This one uh, commentator, Philip Riken, brilliant guy. I think he's the president of Wheaton College now. He was, he was being comedic in his commentary. He said, you know, it's like people will stand around looking at and talking about a bone that's broken. And it's even sticking out of the skin. Wow, look at that. Wow, that's that's amazing, right? The person's writhing around, you know, wow, this really hurts. You know, would you look at that broken bone? That thing's sticking out. Boy, I'm glad I don't have a fracture like that. That's how we treat people when we ignore their sins. Instead, we need to do the difficult thing and help people. People need to be confronted with their sins with the word of God. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible will do the work. The Holy Spirit through the Bible will convict people. 
I have talked to people about their sin issues in psychological categories and circumstantial categories and relational categories in all kinds of mumbo-jumbo, hemming and hawing and talking around the issue. But when you finally get to the Scripture and the weight of the Word is in the moment and you use the Bible like a scalpel, not a two-edged sword moment, but just a precise scalpel, you're doing surgery you know, it's, it's Jesus' example of removing the speck. I think that's Matthew 7. It's eye surgery. You're doing eye surgery gently with the word of God. And then someone is able to see their sin and own it. Then there's relief. There's relief. There's, you know, the neurological pain is subsiding. Things are aligned now. The blood is flowing. There's chemistry happening spiritually. Warren Wearsby said how much we appreciate when a doctor uses tenderness to set a broken bone. It takes a great deal of love and courage for us to approach an erring brother and seek to help him. Christ compared this to eye surgery, and who feels qualified to do that? Well, none of us do. None of us do, but we should do it. We should have a heart for people. I don't know where I read this, but I remember reading it, and it touched my heart. I remember reading about Charles Haddon Spurgeon as a little boy. You know, he's sort of a house of fire preacher as a grown man, but as a little boy, he was a, a young leader in his household where he had siblings and a younger brother who had balance issues, who was under the threat of his father that every time he fell down and dirtied his trousers, he would be disciplined for that. Father was checked out or not caring and hardened towards the son's condition, but Spurgeon loving his younger brother would wipe the dirt off. He would pick his brother up, wipe it off, and care for him. Even though his father's oppression was there, he did it out of a gentleness and a protective approach for his baby brother. And I think that's the approach. That's the heart to have with the body of Christ. People are our brothers, and they are our sisters. But Paul here ends with a single warning. And I don't want you to miss it. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch. It's a skopos word. It's the idea of seeing, being vigilant. It's a present active participle, meaning it's happening all the time. When you are confronting people, you have to first deal with yourself, right? Take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your own conceit. Deal with your own provoking. Deal with your own envy. Deal with your superiority complex. Deal with your inferiority complex. Deal with your glory hunger. Deal with vain glory. Realize that you're as much a sinner as that person and... But by the grace of God, there go I. Do all that you do spiritually. Yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Humble yourself to the word of God and then move by the Spirit into that person's life. You've done the soul surgery first. And then through this process, as you're talking to somebody, be very careful not to let all those things that you have dealt with crop back into your heart. When that person begins to repent, you go... Yeah, look, I'm something here. Right? All that superiority complex can come running back into your life. All that conceit or all that envy. That's where one person put it. Today, they're reinstating one who has sinned, but tomorrow they may need to be reinstated themselves. It's where you recognize that you're capable of any sin that you are trying to restore somebody out of. That's the heart. And when you're humble like that, 
watch the Holy Spirit move powerfully. Because he moves in a way where you're not getting glory for yourself, but you're just in awe that God is working and God is using you and there is true restoration. Just like the miracle of uh, my brother's arm being healed. I mean, it was a pretty bad situation, but it came back to full restoration over a long period of time in physical therapy. It came back to full restoration. But that powerful example is to me an example of how God can restore a life from being in shatters um, to being in, in wreckage to being strong in the Lord. What's our attitude? Well, Martin Luther put it this way. He said, we are to run to people, reach out to people, raise people up and comfort people with sweet words and embrace people like a mother does in motherly arms. 